This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number seven of the series devoted to the Son, the Son of God. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening, if you would join us, will you switch off and read with us the third chapter of John's Gospel. Those of you who have come to this chapel this evening may have noticed that outside we have a poster where the words from John 3.16 have been set out as a sort of an anagram. G-O-S-P-E-L And uh, we don't want to treat you as children but sometimes you may have to speak to children and you may find that it's a very useful thing to put down in large letters G-O-S and against them write the word God and only Son and then P-E-L and write against them perish or everlasting life. It's one of those things which we are thankful for that apart from inspiration the accident of those words helps you to say that here we have the simplest terms of the gospel in two parts. The first part is God's part and God's part is that he sent his son. The second part is what you're facing, the alternatives, perishing or having everlasting life. And the link between the two is the word believing. Well now you might say to me, but I don't see why you should introduce such a simple text into a study like this which has taken us pretty far afield with regard to the question of the person of Christ and references in the Old Testament. Uh, so I say, are you among those who are uh, referring to John 3.16 as what they call the simple gospel? You say, yes. Well, let's have a look, shall we? It won't do us any harm. The simpler the better, I should say, wouldn't you? After all, if it's a matter of life and death to anybody who hears it, but first of all, notice John 3 as a whole. Nicodemus has been given a title, a ruler of the Jews. He's given another title in verse 10, a master in Israel. But he's got a third title. I don't think Nicodemus is ever spoken of in the scriptures without this title, the same that came by night. Some of these things stick, don't they? But here's a little encouragement. It would be better to come by day and openly confess Christ, wouldn't it? But the bruised reed he will not break, and the smoking flax he will not quench, and he wouldn't upbraid Nicodemus for stealing it at night time that nobody could see him, for he knew what Nicodemus was in for if once he stood for Christ. Unfortunately, he couldn't show his love or manifest his faith until Christ was dead and buried. And then he lavished upon him all that tremendous amount of uh, ointment. But I think the little alabaster box that was broken beforehand was of far more value in the sight of the Lord. But there it is. And you will notice over and over again we have the words verily, verily in this chapter. That's characteristic of John. And as far as I remember, he's the one 
who tells us in the book of the Revelation that that is the title of Christ. But you say Christ isn't called verily. Oh no, but the word here happens to be the word Amen. He simply used the Hebrew word Amen. Amen. And when he says that double Amen, it means, now this is something that's important. Well, it's all important, but some may be more vital than others. So right through John's Gospel, you'll find the interspersion of this word. Amen, Amen, I say unto you. Well, you know what your response should be? Amen, Lord, speak on, you see. And that's when we get brought together. He speaks. He testifies. We believe. We are blessed. And then you notice further. He has been speaking about being born of water and spirit. Or might be begotten of water and spirit. And he refers to John's baptism in this very gospel. And when it's all over, he says to this man, if I've told you earthly things, the baptism that had been practiced up to that time was included in earthly things. And Nicodemus is rather upbraided by Christ gently that even an ordinary believer in the Old Testament would know a day was coming when there was going to be this rebirth, a nation should be born in a day and Nicodemus was questioning this, you see. And of course, we can understand his problem. And then, another thought may be wise to drop. Verse 12. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how should you believe if I should go on and tell you of super-heavenly things? Don't you see that while John's Gospel does not teach the truth of the mystery. It makes no revelation of the church which is the one body. It is the one gospel of the four that can lead you on from the gift of everlasting life to consider what is now being taught because John wrote his gospel as far as we know long after Paul was dead so that he could speak in those sort of terms and know that some might be just blessed. Well, I can't go on like that through John's Gospel, John 3, otherwise our time will be more than up. But here we have then a chapter, and we are concentrating our attention upon this verse 16. But then, of course, you know it's not possible to start with verse 16, is it? I don't know how you could open a subject with a word for. If you went up to a man in the street after this meeting was over and said for, well, he wondered what's the matter with you. You see, for is a logical connective. It has no meaning of its own. It only connects two statements together and says, now, if that is accepted, then this must be true. For. So I say to the person who says John 3.16, oh, that's the simple gospel. Especially when they use it in this category. I'm not concerned as to who wrote the Pentateuch or the canonicity of Old Testament and all that. I'm just concerned with the simple gospel. And what do you say would be your chief text for the simple gospel? John 3.16. And what is the first word in John 3.16? The word God. No, it isn't. It's the word for. 
So the word for throws us back a verse or two. We can't go on before we look and see what the connection is. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Don't you see? It's utterly impossible for any person with any logic in his makeup to say, I have no room for the idea of Moses and the miracle of the serpent in the, in the wilderness of uh, Israel's wanderings. Uh, that may or may not be true. I'm not concerned about that. But then the Saviour himself endorsed it. And the witnesses hear that it was true. And again later on, they said about the miracles and the feeding of the 5,000, he said, Moses gave you not that true bread. Your fathers did, did eat manna in the wilderness. Oh yes, but they're dead. I am the true bread. So you see, in more than one passage, John has linked the simple gospel, as we call it, to the books of Moses. In the first chapter, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But he doesn't set Moses aside, he said, he only fulfills it. In John 5, he said, had you believed Moses' writings, you would have believed my words. That's John 5. So, we've got this first connection. Well now, while we're dealing with that, let me slip in just another word. Sometimes we have to speak, or if we don't use it in our spoken ministry, we have to write about figures of speech. And of course some people go off the deep end, which is a figure of speech, by the way. You understand, don't you? Uh, they're still on terra firma at the same time, uh, because they say, oh no, that's explaining away the word of God if you introduce figures. If you knew your own English language, friends, you'd know that you couldn't practically speak a frame of sentence without using a figure of speech. You cannot possibly speak about an invisible idea that's in your mind without reducing it down to some terms that will be like something else in order to explain what you mean. You try it. Now there are two or three simple figures that it wouldn't do us any harm to become acquainted with and not use them indiscriminately. We sometimes hear people say, oh, that's speaking metaphorically. Well, that's using a figure of speech because if you say to them, what is a metaphor? See? Well, now, there are three figures of speech which are linked together. The first and simplest is called a simile. And it sounds like it, doesn't it? It's similar. As, so. That's a simile. You don't say that Christ was a serpent lifted up on a pole, but just as Moses did that, so Christ did that. Then there's an advance. A metaphor doesn't say a thing is like something, it says it is. So Christ said, I am the door. Now, if he said, I'm like a door, that would have been simile. But he said, I am the door. That's a metaphor. And then there's an even further advance of that. To assume the thing that you're implying and never say it. 
And that has got rather a cracked your name until you know what it means. Hypercatastasis. Hypocatastasis. Something put down underneath. Well, what do you mean by that? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. No, he didn't mean the leaven they put in their bread. If it had expanded and said, the doctrine of the Pharisees is like leaven, that's simile. If he said the doctrine of the Pharisees is leaven, that's metaphor. He simply said, beware of it, that's implying it. There's more in these figures, you see, than meets the eye, isn't there? So don't despise them, but don't stuff yourself with them, because you can be just as harmful as otherwise. But when you're studying the book yourself, just watch that you don't misuse these figures, or that you don't miss them. So here we have this simple one, as so. As Moses did this, even so. Well, now we come to the the chapter 316 itself. For God so loved the world. This is one of the statements that I've made before, but I must make it again because of completeness. You could speak about the love of God and cheapen it. You could so talk about God being love that it looks as though well, it's all right. He'll pat you on the head at last like a kind old uncle and say, now run away, don't do it anymore. But he spared not his only son in order that he might be just and to justify him that believeth in Jesus. So we have the um, emphasis on my word love here. Now the emphasis on a word can be by two methods. By continual repetition or by isolation. Saying it once and never saying it again. There are some people I know who use the word love in such a way that when they punch a ticket on a bus it's just love and when you buy something at the grocers it's just love and when I was up in Lancashire one time, I said to her, what do you say when you mean it? She said, what do you mean? I said, when you're calling me love and you don't know me, what do you say when you mean it? Of course, there are others of us, like myself, I've said it once in my life and I never say it anymore. I hope I'm not misunderstood. I think we'll manage. But you see, don't throw this word about, friends. Don't throw it about. Now, there are 28 chapters in Matthew's Gospel. And it's never one statement in Matthew's Gospel that God loved anybody. There are 16 chapters in Mark's Gospel. And there's not one single statement in Mark's Gospel that God loved anybody. And there are 24 chapters in Luke's Gospel. And there isn't a single reference to the love of God in Mark's Gospel. The first statement in the four Gospels that God loved anybody is John 3.16. And the next feature that I would like you to notice is the word so. I know we've had all this before at different times, but this is a a recording as well as our ministry here, and I must include them all as far as it's possible. So, I remember asking one of my daughters when she was a tiny child, what do you think it means? And she put her arms wide open, she says, loves you like this. Well, that was fine, wasn't it? But of course I had to let it go, but we we got down to the Greek when she was a bit older. I tell you what I did, just in parenthesis, 
instead of playing a game with English letters, we played a game with Greek letters. And they were familiar with those as if it was the ordinary one of trying to build up words. Oh, we managed it all right. But that's by the way. Shall we look at the way in which John himself has used this word so? Now, you turn to uh, chapter 3, verse 8. At the end of verse 8, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Well, you can't say it's like this. You mean it's in this manner. Like this. Of course, when I said like this, I opened the arms wide, but that the folks who listen to this tape recording won't know that. See, it's like this. This manner. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. Let's look again at chapter 4. 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat thus, sat like this on the well. No so about it in the sense of being vast and broad or just sat like this. And you'll actually find, I think, <coughs> in chapter 7, 46, that is the translation. Chapter 7, 46. The, the officers answered, never man spake like this man. See? Never man spake so. Never man spoke like this. And the last reference, we might as well get them. <coughs> 21, chapter 1. Now, chapter uh, 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed himself. So there you've got a choice. God loved the world on this wise. How? See, that's asking the question now. How? He showed his love in one way. And that is, he gave his son. You get the same thought coming into John's epistle. Hereby know we the love of God. How? He said his son. And you see, the whole of the love of God is concentrated down on that one spot. And it's an awful thing to say, but it's a truth. You who are listening to me may know the providence of God, for he sends his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He gives fruitful seasons to everybody, doesn't matter what nation you are. You can't always tell a person's a believer by his bank account. The less he believes God, the more money he may have for all we know. That's why I'm looking at it. That's providence. But I believe I'm right in saying that no one will ever know the love of God, apart from his Son. You cannot bypass the Son of God. You cannot get into the presence of the living God, apart from the veil that was rent, apart from the cross that was endured, apart from the gift of that Son to die the just for the unjust. It doesn't say all that in John 3.16, but at the same time, 
there's the first occurrence of the word love of God and he immediately tells you it was like this. Now we had the word world. Now this has been considered from two or three angles. One has said that it doesn't mean the world as we understand it, but it was looking forward to the yet future world where all will be blessed. Well, that doesn't seem to fit in with the next verse, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. He's not going to condemn the world that's yet coming when they're all blessed. So we, we need not try to rush in and save anything. Because God has said to us in the epistle, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, our own common sense ought to tell us that that's a word for us all right. But you have not the slightest idea that when God loved the world and sent his son, God was compromising himself and getting mixed up with worldly things. So should we let it stand? In the earlier Gospel of Matthew, go not into the way of the Gentiles. I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then the epistle comes along and says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John is the one that takes you away from the limitation of being sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and says that God has sent his son into the world, that the world may be lead and be saved. But that's not exactly what it says. Not that the world may believe and be saved, but a certain character. The word whosoever. I believe there's a gospel hymn that says, and God says whosoever, and that means me. So you say to them, whosoever what? Whosoever, like that, no, whosoever believing, whosoever thirsty, whosoever is willing, whosoever cannot stand alone, cannot stand alone, it's got no real meaning. And then secondly, there's no word for whosoever there. All you say, no word for whosoever there. Well, what is there then? Well, I must give you the Greek, and then I'll try to explain it in case you say, oh dear, here it comes again. Well, I didn't write the original New Testament, friends, but if you've got a passage which presents any sort of puzzle to you, get at it somehow and build your doctrine of what God said. Pas, ho, pistuo. Pistuo is the verb to believe. Pistuon is a participle. Believing. Pass is every, and ho is the article that introduces it. A literal translation would be that every believing one should not perish. The same as is every thirsting one should drink. So it doesn't say whosoever indiscriminately, it says 
whosoever of a certain class. There's no limitation of race or colour. It's the world that is now being addressed. But it doesn't say whosoever, whatever they think, whatever they do, whatever they believe, whatever they deny. It says, pass ho pistuo. Every believing one. Every believing one. How wonderfully true that is. Every one of you that are listening to me that knows that Christ is your Saviour, that was the gate by which you entered. At the end of this chapter, I believe, as far as my memory serves me, is the verse by which I entered into salvation and life. So here it is, the very last verse. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's all I heard. And I sat there and I listened to the preacher and I thought to myself, I'm within a two or three months of being 21 and I don't know A from B with regard to what he's talking about. I knew a few odd verses in the Old Testament that we made fun of. I knew Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and I won't finish the chorus we used to sing. That's the end of it. It hit me. He pointed away to the sun and the link was believing him and the result was the gift of God which is everlasting life. And I didn't know what happened to me. But I think something must have been vital that happened then because I'm still here. And that's 60 more years ago. And this whole book has lived as God's word to be increasingly ever since. So there's a precious thought. That's John 3.16 being applied. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But John doesn't hide the fact and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Dreadful thought to say the wrath of God abides on anybody. But, it says so. It says in verse 18, He that believeth on the Son is not condemned. Well, that's a negative. Who are condemned? He that believeth not is condemned already. And this is the condemnation, this is his character. That light has come into darkness. And it doesn't say that folks didn't know it was light. Oh, they knew too well. They knew too well. But it says they loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, my deeds were evil and your deeds were evil. But by the mercy of God, I don't know why or how except His grace. The eyes of your heart were touched. And just as the man said, there on the pole was a serpent, a symbol of sin and all its consequences. And our Saviour said, I, if I be lifted up, the same word used, I, if I be lifted up. And he said, they that looked, lived. They made no promises, they turned over no, no new deeds, 
They just simply believed what God had provided. Well, I looked, and I lived. And there was no holding me. I immediately attended a series of Bible studies given by W.H. Griffith Thomas, a very fine evangelical churchman. And to this day I can remember what he said about the general characteristic of John's Gospel. This was my first Bible study that I ever had in my life. And it had a structure in it. Would you believe it? Of course it did. But this was a simple one. He said, John seems to build his teaching like this. Revelation. Reception. Rejection. He came to his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him. Oh yes. Oh yes, I see him. We'll have an examination at the end of this series, he said. And would you believe it? I'll put my name down and go in for an examination. After one week's acquaintance with the word of God. But there were so few that I never got a chance. Then about seven or eight years afterwards, W.H. Griffith Thomas wrote me from the United States, where he became principal of a Bible training college. He gave me a problem, and he had to do with the Septuagint. And he printed my answer in his paper. I thought, I must write to this man. I must write to him. And when I told him, that he had ministered the word to me, an absolute ignoramus after being converted at that gospel mission. You could tell that the man was grateful and thankful that he'd ever opened his mouth to speak in the name of the Lord. I say these things, I'm not boasting about it, it's all the grace of God. But you see, God can stoop and use very earthen vessels. It's not the vessel that matters so much. We have a saying in this country that some person's a crackpot. Yes, we know what we mean. Well, they said that of me pretty well sometimes. But it's what God is pleased to put in it and pour out from it that matters most, isn't it? So here we then have this um, reference to whosoever believeth. I think that I'll go back on my story a moment and give you one or two other references to this um, way of translating Paso uh, Pistion, every believing one, are keep to John's Gospel. So just turn the page with me to chapter 4, 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, Every drinking one of this water, not whosoever drinketh, but every one who does drink, of course it comes to the same thing in the end, but you can underline the word whosoever and make it mean more than it says. It's whosoever that lines up to the conditions named. Well, the only way that you will get this water and never thirst is to drink it. But if you're like some horses, they take to the water and they won't drink, well, you're thirst, friends. You will. So believe and be saved. Drink and never thirst again. Or again, in chapter 4, 14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give it, he repeats it, the same method. And chapter eleven twenty six of John's Gospel. 
I don't mean to say that other references cannot be found, but we stick to the one writer. 11.26 And whosoever liveth and believeth in me, and again, making it a bit more literal, and whosoever is living and believing in me, shall never die. I rather think that's looking to the second coming of Christ. Whosoever is living and believing in me shall never die. And then in chapter 12, 46. Chapter 12, 46. Uh, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. What a new meaning to the word abide. The wrath of God abideth upon him if he doesn't believe the Son. But he need not abide in darkness if he's among those who believe that every believing one. And then the last reference I give you in this connection is chapter 14, verse 12. Uh, just make sure. Did I say 19? Yes. Did I say? I think it's 19. Sorry. That's my calligraphy. That's a figure of speech, I believe, for good writing. 19. Sorry. Verse 12. From henceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king. See, everyone that makes himself a king is an enemy of Caesar. So, you see, you've got to be watchful that you don't load the word whosoever unnecessarily. Now, let's get, finally, this terrible word, perish. There are some folks who won't have it that means perish at all. And they bring forward the axiom of chemistry that matter is indestructible. So, the best way to establish your argument is to ask them to let you borrow from them a pound note, you know, just a you know, piece of paper with a pound on it. Matter is indestructible. You throw it on the fire. Woo, friends, all right. Matter's indestructible. Nobody says there's a pound gone up in smoke. Matter is indestructible. Yes, but the pound's gone. I see. Right. You keep on shoveling the coal on. And you get a combination of oxygen and carbon, which in the combination releases heat. The smoke goes up the chimney. You haven't destroyed the coal. It's not perished. It's all there floating about in the atmosphere. You go look in your coal bin. As coal, it's gone, isn't it? So it's a quibble. Whatever goes to make up a man is indestructible. In the sense that matter is indestructible. But the man is more than the sum of his parts. He's a living soul. And the scripture says, in spite of the fact that some have loaded the word soul with immortality, I'll tell you whom to fear. 
evil can destroy both body and soul. And as I think I told you once before, standing in the in a porch in Devonshire somewhere because of the rain, I got into talk with a man and his wife. And I asked this lady if she would give me a proof text from the Bible uh, to prove the immortality of the soul. And she said, yes, I've got one. The Old Testament. The soul that's in it, it shall die. I thought, goodness me, what do I do now? A person brings out of the Old Testament a statement that the soul shall die as a proof of its immortality. And you know why? Because I've already invested the word die with that which doesn't mean die, that lives on in another form. So you can just bamboozle yourself. You can just lead yourself astray unless you keep close to the word of God. Let's look at John 6, 27. Labour not for the meat which perish. Same word. The meat which perish. What do you say? The meat doesn't perish. Well, it only changes its form and so on. But you know, there's common sense in the old children's little bit of when she got there. The cupboard was bare and so the poor dog had none. It's no good saying to the dog, it's all right, bow well. The meat has not perished, it's only changed its condition. You see, it's not ordinary, everyday common sense, is it? Here's the word perish. In chapter 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. There's a little extension there. I shall never perish if no man's able to pluck me out of his care, out of his hand. So the alternative of everlasting life, according to several passages, is condemnation, the wrath abiding upon you, perish. And chapter 11.50, where I think we have an argument by a man who wasn't a believer, but he knew the language he was speaking, he said in 11.15, Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. So, we don't want any quibbles about this. We read about the, um, I think it's in Hebrews 11, chapter 11.31, uh, about, um, by faith, the hard at Rahab perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. She perished not, but the others did. The walls went down flat, it was raised to the ground, and they were put to the sword. Dean Orford, who was a churchman, but he was a great expositor, he said, a canon of interpretation, never use in a figurative, use a figurative sense except where it's absolutely necessary to face a fact. Otherwise, you explain away the book instead of explaining it. And that's a danger. Now, to, to finish, the word in the Old Testament for this perishing, or when it says I shall perish like the fat of rams and so on, is A-B-A-D. And 
John, in the book of the Revelation, on more than one occasion, gives you both a Hebrew and Greek word. Will you turn for the last reference this time to chapter um, I think it's chapter 11 chapter 11 verse 11 book of the Revelation chapter 11 verse 11 I think this is dealing with the evil one. Chapter 11, verse 11. I'm sorry, I've missed my way. Uh, chapter 9. So look at that. Oh yes, I think so. I've repented, you see, friends. That's the only thing to do when you're wrong. Chapter 9, verse 11. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, B-A-B-A-D. That's the word for destruction. And in the Greek tongue, Apollyon, and Apolluvi, is the word we've been looking at, meaning perish. So we know that all the Old Testament references that use that word Abad for perishing are those which are used concerning this poor unbeliever. Would you turn to Psalm 37, verse 20? And I'm going to ask Mr. Uh, uh, Ramsey, who is listening to me, if he will find me volume 2 and 3 of the Brian Expositor while I'm looking at Psalm 37. I ought to have got this out beforehand. I'm like the prayer book said, I have left undone the things that I ought to have done many a time. Psalm 37. Here we have um, a reference here, I think, about the, thank you, about the um, verse 20, that's it. The wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke shall they consume away. Well, if God says that when he says perish, they shall be like smoke, they shall consume away, I think a dreadful statement. I leave it there. But I will not add to it anything that has been subsequently foisted upon it that they're going to be in conscious torment forever and ever. Uh, two, three. Now I've got to just look and see which is which of this. I wanted the double volume, but still. We'll see. If I can't find it, I'll have to do without it. Now I'm afraid that I haven't got the right volumes here. I ought to have had volumes 2 and 3 which are preached together. And uh, have you got them there uh, on the back of you in that room? On the on the uh, shelf above your, your back? Because I can't find it in this quick enough. 
sorry, friends, but I'd like to have added, they're not there, volume two and three together, I don't think. But they are, they are there. You know the road that there is there, don't you, Mr. Ruffy? You got it? I don't know whether this is worth it, but I've got a note I would like to have given you. Well, I'll have to leave it there, friends. It was a quotation by a comment by Dr. Weymouth, who was a Greek scholar, and he spoke about the way in which this word has been so misconstrued, misunderstood. But I will tell you that you have access to the double volume, two and three, it's page 133. But I've been given volume two separately and three separately. And my arithmetic won't enable me to add anything together and make 133 quick enough. But I think we've looked as far as it's humanly possible, except I'll bring it to a conclusion by just four references in John's Gospel. And then we shall have to cry halt. Chapter 1. 49. Chapter 149. This is John's Gospel again. Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. And then in chapter 6, 68, 69. Chapter 6. 68 and 69. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. There was a belief associated with a confession and an acknowledgement. Chapter 9, 35. Chapter 9, 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe? Jesus said unto him, Thou hast seen him, and it is he that talketh with me. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. I want you to notice the word cast out. In chapter 10, which has no chapter division in John's Gospel, it says in verse 3, To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Same word. People may cast you out, but the Lord may be leading you out. The very self-same expression, you see. And then we have, in chapter 11, 27, chapter 11, 27, she said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And then, finally, thank you, then finally, in uh, Oh, where have I got to now? There was one other passage I wanted to give you, yes. Chapter 20, the climax that carries you right through with doubting Thomas who wasn't easily persuaded, and that's all to the good in the sense, he wasn't easily persuaded, 
but he outdid them all. Uh, John twenty twenty six and after eight days again his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, behold thy hands, reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into thy, my side, and be not faithless but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now there are some that explain it away as though Thomas simply said, Oh my Lord God, like that. But they do not know the Jew. The Jew is so careful about the sacred name of Jehovah that when they read it in front of them, they don't say it. They say Adonai. Never say it. Too sacred. So he is a, he's a position he's got to. Right through John's Gospel, and this doubting man says, My Lord and my God. So you see, there is a confession associated with the believing. You acknowledge. Oh, thank you. Mr. Myers has come to my rescue by writing just a brief summary. He says, Didn't Dr. Weymouth say that aponumai was one of the strongest words for perishing and to make it mean everlasting consciousness is just a contradiction of terms and the basis of scholarship or something like that. Well, thank you for that little hint. I've forgotten exactly what the wording was. But there we have now. At the close, shall I say to you, when you came into this meeting, you knew, blessedly knew John 3.16, you believed it. And you might have said, well, I don't think we want to spend our time on that because, well, we believe it. Let's have something a bit more down on our level. Friends, I don't think we'll never, never get to the scale the heights or scale the depth either of John 3.16. Not until at last we meet him face to face and we know even as we are known. Blessed are all they who put their trust in him.